0: Amen. Take that Bible and open it, please, to Hebrews chapter 13. If you want to get ahead, we're also going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So Hebrews chapter 13, as we start a new chapter, winding down now toward the end of our study in Hebrews. And what a study it has been. So we come to the close of this book in Hebrews. The author, who you know by now, I believe, is Paul, He's going to give some final exhortations and encouragement to the struggling Hebrew believers. It's like, you know, as if your teenager was going out driving for the first time, and you got those final exhortations. Be careful, slow down, follow the speed limit, be home on time. Well, Paul has some similar exhortations to us, to the Hebrew believers, and by way of application to us toward the end of this letter. It's almost like he's saying, hey, look, I've talked to you about doctrine. I've talked to you about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. I've talked to you how Jesus is more important than all of the rituals and the shadows. And now as I'm closing, I wanna remind you of things that you need to remember. And even though we've learned a lot through our study, remember the context is to a group of believers that are literally living on the edge. They're living on the edge of turning away from Jesus. It's been a hard road for them, as I know for many of you, following Jesus. And when things are hard and difficult, all sorts of choices and options pop up on the radar. For them, they're dealing with rejection and pain. They, they literally lost everyone and everything in their lives. Oh, not because of their own behavior, but because of their choice to follow Jesus. Many people responded by disowning them. They lost their job, they lost their resources. Some of them were even thrown in jail. And the rejection of pain of losing everyone and everything was challenging and hard. So remember these exhortations come in the context of pain and trials and suffering and temptation. They're battling with the consequences of their new identity in Christ. They're wondering about their future and we're having regrets about their past. And you know as well as I do, whenever pain enters in, other parts of our lives have a tendency to suffer as well. It seems as if pain, you know, the old adage, and I found this to be true, that hurting people hurt others. And it is something, it's like a wave that comes through people's lives where in their pain, they then share that pain. I, I think of those that are bitter. Those that are bitter and in sin, they defile people. They hurt other people by their own bitterness. And I think of all the temptations that they face, these Hebrew believers. Paul, he writes in verse 1, Let brotherly love continue. It's that reminder that you're a part of the family of God. As we read in the psalm, he takes the solitary and he puts them in families. And so this admonition, this encouragement say, hey, On all that you're facing and all that you're going through, let it's like participate in the brotherly love that's already there. Keep it going. Don't let it stop with you. As you probably already know, one of the first things to go when trials and temptations come our way is love. I've seen many a believer become very loveless in their trial and in their difficulty, and in their loss. But the word says, let it continue. The brotherly love. For you Bible students, you know that this is the Greek word Philadelphia, or also translated phileo. It speaks of that brother-sister type of love, that deep bond of friendship love. Make sure you stay friendly. Make sure that you let the love of God that connects you with other people not only continue, but continue strongly. And the brotherly love of the church is just a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. There are times when our relationships within the church can be even closer than our family. Our family, like the Hebrew believers that might have turned on us because we're now saved. We're following Jesus and they don't like it. And then now you have the brothers and the sisters. And it's a beautiful thing because it's not just within our local church. You can literally go to any church in anywhere around the world and have an immediate brotherly, sisterly connection of the love of God. But it doesn't start there, does it? It starts first with another word that's used to describe love. It's a different facet. You may, re- you may have heard it as the agape love of God. And the agape love of God is described for us, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4, because I think as we see this, we see what it looks like, at least partially, what brotherly love really looks like. And how can we be in the right position to let brotherly love continue? It speaks to us in our own day and age, in our own personal trials, in the difficulties we face in our culture, that as the church, we would be known for our love. Not for our harshness, not for our anger, not for everything we don't like and everything we're against and everything that's dark and everything that's sinful, but rather we would let brotherly love continue. And it starts with us individually. I mean, if we're not able to love other believers, we're not able to work out our own issues among ourselves, then we're going to have a very strong witness in a world, in a world that just doesn't want to work anything out, that's looking for hope, but they're not willing to admit it. They're looking for hope, but they're not willing to say that. Instead, they're clinging so tightly to their philosophies and humanistic ideas, only finding more pain and more hurt. When they come to the church, they come to us, one of the things they should notice and see, not just hear, but notice and see, is a brotherly love that is birthed than God. Notice verse 1 of Ephesians 4. I therefore... A prisoner of the Lord beg you to have a walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Let brotherly love continue. And it starts with these characteristics. The first one is lowliness. The idea behind that word in the Greek language, the original language, is to be brought low or to be humbled, to be brought into a situation that truly takes you from one place and brings you to a lower place. It's the opposite of asserting yourself. You know, we live in a culture that's taught us very, assert yourself, assert yourself, defend yourself, take up every fight. And there are just some people among us that just love to fight about everything. But the Bible speaks of a lowliness combined, notice, with gentleness. That's a mark of the agape love of God, gentleness. A, a gentle spirit. Someone that, another word for this describing Jesus was meek. You know, Jesus was humble, lowly, gentle, and yet he was also meek, not full of pride. You know, a person that, that has a hard time with lowliness and gentleness is captured by pride. Pride and arrogance are enemies of brotherly love. Pride and arrogance are enemies of brotherly love. A prideful person not only isn't lowly, not only isn't gentle, but a prideful person loves to control everything. Pride makes me feel like I know it all, that I'm smarter than everyone, that I'm wiser than everyone, and that everyone wants to know how smart I am. And a prideful person doesn't like to give freedom to the work of the Holy Spirit, but fights against everything they don't agree with. And yet humility, lowliness, gentleness, notice the next one is long suffering. The the, the idea behind this word is that you have a long fuse before you blow up. So, So a person walking in agape love and then demonstrating that among, isn't someone that's blown up all the time and angry and frustrated. Not only that, but as we deal with one another, we bear with one another. Another way of saying this is you put up with each other's idiosyncrasies. You put up with other people's differences. Not only do you acknowledge that people are going to be different, but you put up with it. You're not always trying to change and trying to shape and mold, but rather you recognize there's differences and you bear with one another. How? In love. It's a manifestation of love. But more than anything, he summarizes the sentence in verse three, endeavoring. The idea of endeavoring is is to exert yourself or to put up a strong fight. He's almost like he's saying, if you're going to fight for anything, fight for this. And he says, endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. And it's such a word from God to us because there's so much division today. And it's not even only over secondary doctrinal things. Everybody's dividing about just about anything that you can divide over. And it's interrupting our brotherly love. It's ruining and soiling our witness. And the church is becoming known as just an angry group that's mad and goes from this church to that church and that church and that. And they're not happy about this or not. And the gospel has been drowned out. And it's like the Bible says, hey, look, God is saying, get back to brotherly love. Just let it continue. You don't have to make it up. You don't have to create it. You don't have to read a book about it. As you abide in Christ, he then takes these characteristics and they live out in your life. The way of the cross is humility and self-sacrifice, unconditional love, keeping the unity that's already there Walking in humility, like the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18. The Bible says, If it's possible, as much as depends upon you, live peaceably with all men, exert yourself toward unity, not fighting, not competing. Not angry all the time, but rather walking in the spirit, not fulfilling the lust of the flesh. So beautiful. Come back to Hebrews now. Let's look at the second admonition or the exhortation here as the chapter begins. He says, let brotherly love continue. And secondly, he says, don't forget to entertain strangers. For by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. This is neat. He says, don't forget. And the next one, he's going to say, remember. So now he says, don't forget this one thing. Don't forget to entertain strangers. Don't forget to connect with people you don't know. Don't forget that. You know, because when you're caught up in whatever's going on in your life, you just care about yourself. You just care about maybe self-preservation. You just care about your opinion, care about your attitude. And you don't care about strangers anymore. The gospel is for strangers. You and I were strangers to God. And aren't you glad somebody entered into your life? Could have been a mom, could have been a dad, grandma, grandpa, could have been a friend, a coworker. It could have been a stranger to you that was obeying this scripture. Don't forget to entertain strangers. This applies to believers and unbelievers alike. God has called us not to isolation, but to infiltration. Like God has called us to be in the world, but not of the world. Now, the word that would describe this the Bible word that would describe this is hospitality. Do you know in First Timothy chapter 3 when Paul is telling Timothy as he's looking for leaders and elders in the church, he says that one of the things that they're to have is to be hospitable. And that is, that has the idea of serving, loving, and listen, opening your home to strangers. Opening your home to people, and that, that's believer and unbeliever alike. Not, not just your home, though. It's not exclusive to your home. It's more so if you broaden it, it's opening your heart. If you are not one to serve others that you don't know and you haven't met and maybe are different than you, then you're going to have a hard time being a leader in the church. You're going to have a hard time being a believer because true Christian love. Always, wherever you find true Christian love, you will always find true Christian hospitality. Hospitality is a big part of the Christian witness in the world. But here's a challenge. We've just become so skeptical and critical of others in our culture. And for some, there's good reason. Like, this isn't just something you open, you, you walk in wisdom, you're just so wide open everything and just trust it. Like, you, obviously you're going to walk in wisdom, you're going to be careful, but some people have that, that pendulum has swung so far over, you haven't talked to a stranger about Jesus in years. That is not the will of God. It's not the will of God for you to not interface with people you don't know, to not connect with people you haven't met yet, or to have a heart for others. And you're gonna see that this whole section here is all about thinking of others, remembering others. And he says, don't forget to entertain strangers. Now, this whole thing that we've been introduced in the last 12 months, as I believe, has done great damage to many many of us. And it's that phrase, social distancing. Social distancing is the antithesis of Christian hospitality. Now, let me pause and just acknowledge that in this time of crisis and the reality that people can be sick, the distancing or respecting others' desires is something we should do. And we be careful. There might be people that just want that in their lives and we want to be respectful. We don't want to just shove it down their throat, All oh, don't be so scared and don't be so fearful. We'll respect where they're at in their lives and still continue to build a relationship with them. However, I don't know if you've noticed, but this idea of social distancing has made people want to avoid other people. That's not from the Lord. It's not from the Lord for us to ignore other people, avoid every... I know when we were in California recently, there were people that would go on the other side of the street because we were on the sidewalk. And I mean, we had our face coverings on, but you could tell that there was just this nervousness and this, listen, this irrational fear. It is not God's will for you and I to live in irrational fear. That's where the Bible says that he's not given us a spirit of fear. Like that's irrational fear. Now, the concern for your health, I know uh, I just did a house visit recently. I, I wore my face covering in honor of the person that's very sick. Like respect is different. Showing respect for people is different than staying away from people. The whole purpose of the Christian life is to enter into other people's lives and to connect with each other. So, so even this conditioning It's like, well, you know, just stay away from people. Don't have people in your house. Don't have people over. That is not the Christian witness. It's just not. And as you assess in your own life, perhaps it's not your home. Maybe right now in your home you say, no, right now we don't want anyone in home. Well, then find a place to meet with people and meet with them then. Go, Go to a coffee shop. Go to a restaurant. Find someone. Go to a park and sit on a bench. But don't close your heart to the stranger. To Christian hospitality. And then he says at the end, which is kind of cool, he says, hey, don't do it because you never know. You might be entertaining angels. And I think what he has in his mind here is back in Genesis 18, remember? Abraham had those visitors that came to his house. He had no idea he was entertaining angels, and he was entertaining Jesus Christ in a pre-incarnate appearance. He had no idea. But what was he? Hospitable. Come on in. Let me serve you. Let me love you. Let me care for you. That is the witness of the church. And in times of difficulty, love and hospitality have a way of disappearing. And then what witness does the church have? Notice number three. Look at number three now in verse three. He says, remember the prisoners as if chained with them and those who are mistreated since you yourselves are in the body also. So he goes from, don't forget the strangers, and then he says very specifically, you, in times of death, you need to remember prisoners and those that are mistreated. Now, that's a large group of people. Now, not only does that refer to those that are in prison, and here the context would be, the primary group of people he's referring to would be those believers they're in the body, those believers that, because of their Christian witness, end up in prison. Remember, Paul would tell Timothy, he got thrown in prison many times for his faith, and Paul would tell Timothy, hey, remember me. Remember me. Don't, don't neglect me when I'm in chains. And he was in chains many times. As a matter of fact, the text is 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God. To have a sympathetic heart to those that are in prison. And here's what happens. When we think of prisoners, there's a very natural way of thinking, well, they deserve it. They deserve it. So why should I remember them? That they get what they deserve. Well, maybe they are getting what they deserve and remember them and show compassion on them, and be there for them. Serve them, minister, and pray for them. Like, it's very important that we don't forget prisoners, not just those that might be believers, but unbelievers like The church is to permeate the world. And it's not just to sit back. I, I know that I was in jail before, and I deserved it. And I'm grateful that the love of God reached me too. We don't forget Prisoners. We don't forget what God wants to accomplish in the life of a person just because of the consequences of their sinful behavior. You know why? Because we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have. Remember the prisoners. Not just that, he says, remember those who are mistreated. Think of in our world today, in our culture today, how many people are just simply mistreated, taken advantage of. I think of the poor, I think of the homeless, I think of the immigrants. I think of those that are on the other side of racism. They're mistreated. We're not to forget them. And we're not to participate in that nonsense. We're, we're Or sin. I call it nonsense. It's actually nonsensical sin. We're to be the type of church, the type of believers that walk in love. And we're to remember, there's a special mention here in the Bible, that our hearts, our hearts are to remember those that are mistreated. Certainly, we're not to be the ones that mistreat. We're not to be the ones that champion because we have an opinion or we have an attitude. We're we're to be the church. We're to walk in brotherly love. We're to encourage people. We're serve each other, love each other, which is where I want you to pray for us as a church as God opens different doors. But specifically, I want you to join in this particular prayer that we've been praying for many years, and that is we have a desire to buy one more radio station and adding it to our Grace FM radio network. It can happen one of two ways. Uh, the best way would be, and so pray for this, the best way would be is we get another station, larger and stronger signal in Colorado Springs to replace the one we have now so that it will all reach all of Colorado Springs, which is a much small, stronger signal, and would reach down into Canyon City. Because last count, there are 13 prisons in Canyon City. And we want to reach them with the Word of God regularly. That is one of the ways that we, on a regular basis, as a church family, collectively, are remembering the prisoner. You, like, we've been on the radio in our teaching ministry for 20 years now. Grace FM's been on the air for 10 years. And we get a lot of response from prisoners. Both those that are in uh, jail and those that got out that the radio broadcast, that the teaching... Because you know right now, with the way things are, you can't go into the prisons. They've closed that part of the ministry. So with the exception of maybe the chaplains there, but I think you know this already, many of the chaplains in our prison system aren't believers. So they're not coming in with the hope of Jesus. They're not coming in with the hope that God is with you. They're coming in with some other false teaching, some weird stuff. Uh, I know they care for people, but they're not giving the truth. And so we want the radio, though, cuts through all that. It goes into the prisons all day, every day, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And we get feedback. I mean, literally, we get a lot of feedback from up here, from Denver, the the prison that's out east here. We get a lot of feedback. There's even times where people will come, they'll they'll write us a note, and they'll let us know that they gather around the radio, and that's their church service. So I want you to pray. And the specific thing is that a station comes up for sale because somebody had taken the prayer request in our service last night and sent me a list of all the open frequencies down there and says, well, can't you pick one of those? We can't. Yeah, the, the way radio works, it's like real estate. Once they build it, that's all there is. And so there's no permits and nothing that we can do. And we, we are a church. We're not gonna build a radio station anyway. We're What we need is a station to come up and of course the price is right and everything and we'll add it so that we can reach those prisons. And we've already prayed, you know, we've got... Calvary Chapel in Canyon City praying, the Calvary Chapel in Pueblo, Pueblo West. It would help all the churches down there too. But when I read this, I'm like, yes, Lord, we need and we want. I mean, we don't need it, but we want it. We want to be able to provide 24-7 Bible study to the prison zone. 13 prisons. uh, 13 prisons filled. And on top of that, I learned, as I had a lot to learn, I learned that also uh, around the prisons, families move into town so they can be close and visit. So the whole city's filled with people, families, brothers, sisters, grandmas, grandpas, kiddos, that the gospel can permeate. So join me in that prayer. Um, It's been something we've prayed, I think, for seven years now. So just keep praying because we were praying when we got this station and we were praying when we got that station. So the next one, the Lord knows what he wants to do, but we can't forget them. And on a practical level, we need to remember that people are mistreated. And the church has been put on the earth to help those that have been mistreated. If only you are one less person mistreating someone else and elevating and helping people along the way. Very interesting. Remember what Jesus said. I want you to see this in your own Bible. Would you turn over to Matthew 25? Matthew chapter 25, because you need to mark this, how important this is. And as you see this first section in Hebrews, it sounds very much like what Jesus is teaching which is always cool because when you're talking and you're sharing and things you're saying sound like Jesus, it's just evidence that he lives in you and you're learning and growing. Listen to what Jesus says in this very monumental teaching. Pick up with me in verse, well, let's start in verse 31. Matthew 25 verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, He'll sit on the throne of His glory. All the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And He'll set the sheep on His right hand and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on His right hand, Come, you blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food, and I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. And I was a stranger and you took me in and I was naked and you clothed me and I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, verse 37, saying, Lord, when do we see you hungry? When do we feed you thirsty and give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly, I say to you, Inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Doing to the least. The motives of God to move in us, to serve in this world, to bring hope and encouragement to others. Which leads us to the final one in our study day in verse 4. It says, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed is undefiled but fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. In a culture then and now that is redefining marriage, undermining it, ridiculing it, dismissing it, the Bible speaks loud and clear. Marriage is honorable. And listen, when things get tough and things get hard, for those of you that are married, you've got to put an extra guard up around your marriage. It's not time to let your guard down. It's time to put your guard up even higher to take care of one another and guard the boundaries of your marriage. Remember, the Hebrews are just, I don't know what to do. I'm not sure where to go. And some of them, although the text doesn't say, I can, I, I can venture a guess into the situation that as some are wrestling with the reality, one, of the, one person in a marriage would want to go back into Judaism, but the other one would stay. And in honoring marriage, you want to be one in your decisions. You don't want to be. You're no longer independent. You're now one. That's what marriage does. And the definition of marriage couldn't be clearer. It's one man, one woman, one lifetime. There isn't two definitions. There's not three definitions. There's not five definitions. In a world that's trying to change it all, the Word of God speaks loud and clear. Marriage is honorable. Divorce is not an option. And I read that exactly as I put into my notes because I think that's a word from the Lord to a wrestling spouse today. Divorce is not an option. Don't even mention it. Yet even more, don't live your life in such a way where it becomes a thought and an option. It's God's will for you to work out the situation that is currently troubling your marriage. To work it out. To come together. To to reassess your role in the marriage and the power of God to enable you to come together and protect that oneness. To protect that oneness. At every ceremony, marriage ceremony that I get to officiate, I will look at each, the groom and the bride, and I will read to them, turn over to Ephesians chapter 5, I will read to them the godly descriptions of their role in marriage. So go with me to Ephesians again, now this time chapter 5, because God has prescribed for us roles and responsibility that He empowers us to fulfill. Ephesians chapter 5, pick up with me in verse 22. Ephesians five twenty-two. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church, and he's the savior of the body. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. And it's highly unfortunate that many a husband has taken this passage and used it as a tool, or perhaps even as a club, to harm and to hurt their wives by asserting the necessity of submission. It's just too bad, because that's not the heart of God, as you'll see in a moment. Submission is a gift. It's a, a gift of obedience unto the Lord that the wife gives to her husband within the confounds of a loving relationship. Because notice what the husband's responsibility is in verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water of the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, because no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. I have yet to meet a woman and dwelt by the Holy Spirit who does not offer a submissive spirit to a loving husband. Love is the key. And husbands, we have the responsibility to love our wives. How? Well, the example is given very clearly is Christ loved the church. So important. How did Christ love the church? He died for her. He died to himself in a very real way. Physically died, of course. But for us spiritually, how do we love our wives? The greatest way to love our wives is to die to ourselves. And to live to love. It's kind of like the dating days, right? Wives love if the dating days would last forever. It would be great. The pursuit and the care and the concern, like Peter would say later. He, he would tell us as husbands, husbands, dwell with your wives. How? How? with understanding. And the idea behind that word understanding is, hey, dwell with your wives and continue to pursue them, and get to know them, and learn the different facets of them. And when a husband is loving his wife, a wife is submitting to her husband, and these issues never come up in the marriage. Never. And at every ceremony, while we're here on this stage, or wherever the, wherever the wedding is, I'll look at each of them. I say, these are your responsibilities. This is what God has told you to do. This is how marriage works. Notice verse 30. For we are members of His body and His flesh and His bones. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. There's a responsibility on the husband's side to disciple his wife, to teach her and take her along the way. But there's also a responsibility of the wife to show respect and honor. And in the marriage, you can speak truth to one another and help one another grow in the things of God, not help one another fall away from God's best. And anyone listening to me right now, that have been touched by divorce, whether personally or in your family, know how painful it is. You know, the Bible says that God hates divorce. Many times that gets interpreted like God hates people that are divorced. That's not what it says. The Bible is very clear. God hates divorce. And any of you that have been hurt by divorce, you probably hate it too. The effects of divorce is so painful, so hurtful. And it's just the enemy of our souls looking for that little opening That little crack, that little opening, you know, you have a a fight with your spouse, and all of a sudden somebody's paying attention to you. The very next day, somebody gives you special attention at work, and you go, oh, interesting, somebody cares about me. And then you begin to pursue it. You have a little, you know, you maybe it's been an argument that's lasted for a while, and you let the sun go down on your wrath. Uh, and, and you just keep anger and anger. You're getting more anger. You're getting more anger. You are getting more angry. you will not talk to each other, even in different rooms, different beds, di- sleeping on the couch. All the things that we joke about are very serious matters. And there you are. You're in a very serious time in your marriage. And then, whoa, somebody from high school just popped up on Facebook. Oh, wow. And now because of the condition you're in, you reach out or they reach out to you. Listen, when you're in a difficult time in your marriage, I don't want you just to think of it as difficult. I want you to think of it as vulnerable. If the enemy can divide us in our marriage, he makes us very vulnerable. Now, in the midst of an argument, you don't view yourself as very vulnerable. You think you're strong. You think you got it. You think, but but you're very vulnerable. And the person that enters into your life in that vulnerable thing, let me just tell you, as much as you might like the attention, as much as you might like the gifts, as much as you like the, the little rendezvous, that person couldn't care less about you. They're only taking advantage of your vulnerability. They're only taking advantage of you in your weakness. They don't care. They don't care about your wife or husband at home. They don't care about your kids. They don't care about your parents. They don't care. You know, maybe what we're seeing within the young people today is that there's this, this, this time now where they're trying to figure out who they are, and now the options are so much more. And one of the things that kids are really are trying to figure out is, what's my sexual identity? That's a big thing today. I'm not sure what I am. And as our culture keeps promoting, well, I came out this, and I came out that, and I take this, and the parents are all upset, and they're all over. Like, the kids are vulnerable. And let me just say, if you're a kid right now and you're trying to figure out who you are, just ask God. He'll tell you exactly who you are. He made you male or female. And maybe he made you for singleness, but he made you male or female. And maybe he made you for marriage, but marriage is one man, one woman. That's marriage. It's not maybe somebody enters into your life and and feels that vulnerability in you and is drawing you into a relationship that doesn't glorify God. It could be through fornication, it could be through lesbianism, it could be through homosexuality. All those things that don't honor God, I can tell you the person that's drawing you away from God doesn't care. And you want to come back to what's important. See, in the midst of difficulty and trial, marriage is honorable. And he says, do you notice back in Hebrews? Oh, before we get to Hebrews, let me just speak one more word about submission. Submission's not just for the wife, you know that, right? I saved a verse for last out of order. Go back to verse 21, because the Bible says that we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. Submission is for all of us. And if you think about it, just being in a service right now, you're in submission right now, willingly, on purpose, because you recognize that this is a teaching atmosphere. You recognize that that men and women, boys and girls have come to be taught the Word of God, and so you have purposely submitted yourself to the environment for the purpose of Bible study. Now you may have never thought that, but that's what you're doing. Like if you just had this errant thought is, you know what? I got this song in my head and I think I want to dance. I think I just want to dance. And you just get up right now and start dancing all over. A couple things are going to happen. Number one, you're going to find out there's a lot more security in this room than you realize. (laughs) And they're going to ask you to please take your dancing outside. Because that would be, although dancing's not a sin, being done in the middle of a Bible study is inappropriate. (laughs) It's lack of submission. You're not caring about one another. See, when you submit, when you and I choose to submit, what we're saying is this. I care more about others than I care about myself. I care more about others. I may want to do this, and I can even do it. I can do this. You go, I can do this anytime I want. You probably can. But in order to love others submission says, I'm going to care about the whole more than I care about the part. And that's what happens in marriage. I care more about the whole than I do about the part. And I know that if I'm in a problem right now and I've got challenges in my marriage, if I choose to submit to God and I choose mutual submission in my marriage, then I'm on the pathway to see this solved. I'm on the pathway for God to use this. And if you're single today, then you have even a greater opportunity to submit yourself to God as you wait in contentment for that person that God has for you in marriage. That God wants you to remain. Notice the last thing in Hebrews 13 is he wants you to remain pure. When he says the married bed is undefiled, he's saying that there's a place for sex. And it's not fornication and it's not adultery. Did you see that? He gives that at the end. He says, fornicators and adulterers will be judged. The mar- the honor- marriage is honorable. The married bed is undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers will be judged. What does he mean? Well, there's a place for sex. Sex is honorable in marriage. Marriage, according to the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, was, is for the creation of children. Secondly, marriage, according to the Bible, is for companionship and intimacy, Genesis chapter 2. Marriage, also number three, is for the domain of sexual expression, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. The married bed is undefiled. Sexual purity is important to God. And it's important to your spouse, too. It's important to the church of God, sexual purity. You see, marriage is honorable, not just for us. That's actually not the primary reason. Marriage is honorable and to be protected and guarded because it represents the picture. It's a picture of representing the true relationship between Jesus and his bride. You don't want to mess with the picture of Jesus and his bride to a watching world. And although we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, like, like maybe you're on the other end of a divorce and you've come through one, if the, if the Lord has it, if it's His will, according to His word, for you to remarry, then just make the divorce in your past the last divorce you ever have. Or as I often say, make this the last marriage you ever have. And stay strong in the place of God. Stay strong and faithful to Him. Don't go out on your spouse, both physically, emotionally, mentally. You know what's happening is, is more and more relationships are being dissolved by pornography. You think pornography is not painful to your spouse, you're wrong. It damages your spouse. It is pornography, participating in pornography, listen, is sex outside of marriage. That's what it is. And many times it hurts your spouse. Now primarily, this is a sin that covers men and women, but primarily men. And let me just tell you, having sat across a table many, many times... Pornography feels like adultery to your wife. You might say, well, you know, I didn't do it. I was just looking and not touching. It feels as if you went all the way with another woman. It dehumanizes your wife and husband. It demoralizes them. And it ruins and defiles your head. And destroys intimacy. You just got to stay away from it, church. It says right here, adultery and fornication will be judged by God. They go, but I'm a believer, I got freedom. There's a judgment and a consequence for all of our sins as believers. And the Lord wants to wash and cleanse you by the water of his word. He wants to free you from this decrepit, horrific sin that has infiltrated the church. What's commonplace in the world can't be commonplace in the church. If that's a part of your life, you need to repent Forsake and run away from it. Within marriage, sex is beautiful, fulfilling, even creative. Outside of marriage, in any way, it's ugly, destructive, and brings great long-term consequences. Back in Hebrews, at the end of chapter 12, remember what it said in Hebrews 12 and verse 29? For our God is a consuming fire. Which reminded me of how fire is a beautiful thing when it's in the right place. You know, fire in this kind of weather in your fireplace is a beautiful thing. It brings warmth to your home. It's beautiful to watch. It's contained and it's exactly where it belongs. But you take that same fire and you bring it out to the forest and you put it at the base of a tree. It very much can do far more damage than you ever expected. It can wipe out entire hillsides and mountainsides. Because fire outside of its purpose can be very destructive and dangerous. Sex is very similar. And in the right context, the married bed is undefiled. It's beautiful. It's wonderful, enjoyable. Outside, it is destructive and harmful. And so it makes sense, does it not, to a group of people that are just wavering in between, not sure what to do, that he says, hey, let love continue. Don't forget what binds us together is the love of God. He says, don't forget to entertain strangers. Don't isolate yourself in times of difficulty. You might even entertain an angel. Who knows? Not only that, but remember the prisoners. They're isolated. They have nowhere to go. But also those that are mistreated, looked down upon. You know, when I think of mistreated, I I think of that category of people that automatically go, well, they deserve it. Well, they deserve it. Well, they want it. who cares? They're still mistreated. What does the gospel have to say to those that are in a very difficult place in their life, whether they chose it or not? I mean, anyone that gets involved in sin and has to deal with the consequences, they chose sin. Nobody sins by accident. And we have to have a love to care and help people, help them get back up. Not only that, but you remember that marriage is honorable. Guard and protect your marriage. The bed is undefiled. And just by way of definition, fornication is sex outside of marriage, whereas adultery is sex breaking the bond of marriage. So adultery is committed by a married person. Fornication is committed by someone that is not married. That's the general definitions. But if you want the bigger picture, it's sex outside of its proper place in the mind, in the heart, and also physically. And that's just God's word for you. It's God's word for you here. For those of you tuned in from afar, God is looking in these last days to build purity in us, something that he does. He wants to heal. Perhaps this is part of your past. He wants to bring healing into your life. I in no way stand here speaking lightly of the pain that you carry because of these particular sins. The consequences are horrific and hard and challenging often very traumatic and long-lasting but the Lord can heal he can do a great work we have testimony after testimony of people that can look back on a much more difficult day of the healing and forgiveness and hope that the Lord has brought into that but now looking forward we just won't go there looking forward we just need to learn to walk in the Spirit so that we don't fulfill the less of our flesh. Walking in honesty and fidelity, being careful. Why? Because the family of God is important. We're to saturate ourselves with the love of Christ, both brotherly and also the agape love of God. So Father, we ask that you would bring home the truths that we share today. Um, challenging for sure but also, God, a, a work of your Holy Spirit that you're setting people free right now. That things aren't going to be hidden. They're not going to be in the dark. I pray for those spouses that yell at each other and that scream at one another. I pray, God, that you would end that. That they would respect one another and care for one another and, and talk through their differences. That two, that, they, that, that they would... I just pray that that in their argument, they would come and die to themselves to work this out that their love for one another would be greater than their anger with one another. Lord, I pray that right now for those listening. I pray that in the marriages right now, that there would be a elevation of love. And I I know things are hard. I know things are challenging. I know temptations abound and challenges abound. And this last year has even made things worse as, as couples have been spending more time together, Lord. So more things are revealed. But we're grateful, God. We are grateful that What is hidden will always be brought to light. So forgive us for trying to hide things, for trying to pretend they didn't exist, but rather giving us the strength and the power and the wisdom to walk in lowliness and gentleness, being patient with one another, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. So we pray, God, that you would pour out your Spirit upon us That we might be a witness to a watching world, that we might just finally throw our hands up and surrender and recognize we are nothing without you. And I for one, God, am grateful you saved my marriage. I'm grateful that you changed me and you changed Marie by bringing us into a relationship with you and teaching us how to be a husband, how to be a wife, how to be a mom, how to be a dad a path that we're still on to this day. And we just give you glory for the great power you have to enter in to a very messed up relationship and save it and rescue it for your glory. And I pray that over our church and over our city and everywhere this goes for, I pray God that we would be used as we enter into people's lives, serving, loving, and caring in Jesus' name. Amen.